Well, it is a pleasure for me to be able to uh, be the teacher tonight, as I was asked to be. And I suppose I overestimated your endurance when I first chose Psalm 119. So I'm sorry about that. You know, it is the evening, and so we'll just take Psalm 19. Uh, But this is a wonderful Psalm of David, and it has much to instruct us tonight, especially as the people of God who love the gospel and who have been trained to see God's sovereignty in all things in this world and that he governs everything and that we are to submit everything in every realm of life to him, those things we all hold dearly as evangelical and Reformed uh, churches this evening. Uh, there has been, over the course of my years of public ministry, which are over 30, a recurrence of a, a problem early on in my life and ministry. Uh, when I first got out of seminary, there was still some uh, heavy debate about the very nature of the scriptures. Were the scriptures authoritative and er- inerrant? Did they happen to have a few mistakes that we could allow in there? What is our doctrine of scripture? It was heavily debated uh, between evangelicals and non-evangelicals and even among evangelicals. And then for about 20 years, we didn't hear much. And then all of a sudden, about 10 years ago, everything started to hit the fan again. And people began to wonder, where did the Bible really come from? Who chose the books that are in the Bible? Was it just by political power plays that one group chose some books of the Bible over another group? Do we really have authentic manuscripts that give us the original wording of the Bible? Is the Bible really written by the people who are said in the Bible to have written it? Or are they compilations of a number of authors, not in the first century, but maybe the second and even third century, some people were saying. There's been much debate and much confusion, particularly among young college students, who are still hearing that sort of debate going on without very good answers. What we find any time that we face issues in life, whether it's issues of parenting or marriage or ethics in the workplace, ultimately it's going to come back to why do you believe what you believe? Ultimately it's going to come back to what is the authority upon which you base your opinions? And it was true also in the Protestant Reformation that we had many debates about theological issues. The key one being, how do we find our right standing before God that allows us to be admitted into his holy dwelling? That was the big debate. There were other smaller debates, but they all lead back to this question. On what basis do you develop your opinions? And the Protestants had a very clear statement. It's known as one of the solas. It was called sola scriptura, that is, the scriptures alone. Now, Reformed people, Baptists, Presbyterians, and Independents, also have their favorite documents drafted by human beings. We all love our confessions of faith. If you're a Presbyterian, you love your Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. If you're Dutch Reformed, you love your Heidelberg Catechism. If you're a Baptist and you're Reformed, you love the London Baptist Confession. We all have our favorite confessions, and we believe in the value of the great seven ecumenical councils. And we learn from teachers in the church, old and new alike. And we believe that we need to continue to be Reformed on the basis of Scripture. However, we find ourselves sometimes latching on more tightly to our traditions our doctrinal traditions, then we do the Bible itself. And every generation needs to be renewed by the Bible alone. Now, that's the reason that we turn to Psalm 19, 
Because if you know anything about my friend David, he needed a lot of renewal. David got himself and the people of God in a lot of trouble. He needed to be guided. He needed to be reformed. He needed to be revived in his soul. And he found a way to do that solely upon God revealing his own character to us. Now, C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, and I ask you to open your Bibles again to the psalms so that we can study it together. We're going to go right through it. He said that this psalm must be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And truly, it is a wonderful psalm, a wonderful poem. It's lyric in its quality, and it is theologically profound in its content. And it is worthy of our attention tonight because of the questions and cynicism that surrounds us in our own society with regard to the Scriptures and because of our own questions about the Bible in our own minds, if we're honest about it. Let's take a look at the psalm, and you'll see three sections to the psalm. In fact, in your ESV, more or less, they're broken out in these stanzas. Psalm 1 through 6 talks about what we call natural revelation. That is, God reveals himself to us not only in the scriptures. He reveals himself to us in creation itself, which includes actually our consciences. So every human being has access to knowledge about God by virtue of being a human being. And that's what human beings can do as opposed to the rest of the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom cannot think thoughts about God. The animal kingdom cannot deduce, nor can they induce. They cannot reason and draw the conclusion that there must be a creator. But human beings can and must do just that. And that's one of the reasons that we are made in his image, that we may come to know him and think thoughts after him. And in verses 1 through 6, David is saying that God has made himself known to us. Now, sometimes we suppress that knowledge. We'll get to that in a moment. But God himself has revealed himself in creation. Now, when you come to verses 7 through 11, David then turns his minds to what we would call the Scriptures. He turns his mind to what we call special revelation. That is, God has revealed his saving plan to his people through special revelation, that is, revelation beyond what's available in natural, the natural order. He has revealed it through miracles, prophecies, and eminently, of course, in the written word of God. And then when we come to uh, verses 12 through 14, we shall see David's response to God's revealing himself to us as his people. So verses 1 through 6 speak largely about natural revelation, verses 7 through 11, largely about special revelation in verses 12 through 14, what you do about it. Now let's look at verses 1 through 6. And here I'd like to, I'd like to say about this stanza that we should learn and make this observation. It is our duty to learn of God's power and deity in his creation. It is our solemn duty to learn of God's power and his deity, that is, that he is God, from his revelation in the created order. 
And you can see this from what David is saying. Take a look at it. Here he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You say, I looked up at the sky before I came to church tonight. I didn't hear anything except an airplane flying over. Here's what David is saying. You've got to remember now, David's a poet. So he gets poetic license. And he's saying that the revelation of God's character is so clear in the creation. It is as though the heavens themselves are preaching to you. John Calvin put it this way. And by the way, if you're looking for something new for your personal devotional time beyond the Bible, after you read the Bible, you might just think about reading through Calvin's commentaries of the scriptures. But here's what Calvin says about this wonderful verse. He says, God introduces the heavens as witnesses and preachers of the glory of God, attributing to the dumb creature a quality which, strictly speaking, does not belong to it, in order the more severely to upbraid people for their ingratitude if they should pass over so clear a testimony with unheeding ears. Calvin is saying that what David is saying is, We're the dumb ox. If we let the heavens declare the glory of God and we don't hear anything, if we make no observation and then draw no deduction from that, that there is a God who is powerful, who has made the order of things. And he goes on. If you see in in verse 2, he says, Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What, What is David saying? He's saying not only by looking up into the skies on a given day, Can you therefore deduce there is a God who is powerful, who is wise? Look at the way he ordered things. But David goes on to say, now check this out. Day after day after day, the sun continues to rise in the east and set in the west. Look at the order, the magnificence of God's wisdom. Day after day pours forth, he says, it's bubbling over. It's more than your minds can contain when you look day after day at the order God has made. And then he goes on to say in 2B, night after night. And think about it. Before our powerful telescopes were available to us, how did we observe the heavens? Not during the day except to see the sun and every once in a while the moon. But at night, the ancient could sit back in the evening with no city lights at all and a perfectly dark surrounding. And he could look into the heavens and he could see what we know to be the galaxies beyond him. He could see the multitude of the stars that God had placed in order and some of the planets on a given night. And it was by the gift of night that God allowed the observer, the human being, to take notice of the splendor of the heavens. And what David is saying is that when you look at the Pleiades and the Orion, when you, when you look at the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper, you're seeing the mighty handiwork of God. And only someone, says Paul, who actively suppresses the truth in unrighteousness could possibly deny that it is obvious that there's a creator who is wise and powerful who put these things in place. Not too many years ago, I had a a very interesting conversation with a very bright Rhodes College student. And she was a philosophy major. And she was particularly fascinated with mathematics. 
And although I had advanced mathematics in college because I was an electrical engineering graduate, I could not follow her argument either. So don't feel badly if you only got to Algebra 2. But she said, you know, there's a, there's a secret to the universe. I said, yeah, I think, I think there is. What do you think it is? And she said, well, it's mathematics. She said, you know, I'm convinced now in my combining my philosophy classes with my math classes, if I put this together, I am going to come up with a scheme that explains the universe. <laughs> Until she became a Christian. And then her eyes were open and the scales came off her eyes. And she said, oh, now I see it even more gloriously than I ever saw it before. It is the Lord, the creator, who put things in such an order and related them in space and time that we can make our mathematical discoveries and formulas and predict where they're going to be hundreds of years from now. What an amazing God, she said. That's what happens, David said. When you come to know God, you look at his creation and you see his handiwork everywhere. Now, it used to be, uh, and none of us here are probably old enough to remember because it wasn't true in your generation, but in the early 20th century at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, I happen to know because I looked it up, around 1920, there is chapel required every day for students. You say, now that's an odd thing in a state university. Well, let me tell you why. The word university comes from the word universe, which comes from the idea of unity. Uni means one. So the university is the place where we're supposed to go, where every all knowledge gets united around one grand principle. And what is that principle? That God is the creator and sustainer and judge of all that is. And since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of learning and understanding and of wisdom, it used to be in the old days that the universities would understand that you can't have a universal idea without God. And furthermore, they understood that whether a student studies history or philosophy or astronomy, that they should go to their classes in the morning and then shortly after lunch, they should all come to the center of the campus where the chapel is because there's where we praise God for giving us order in zoology and giving us me mechanical engineering and giving us the heavens and astronomy and giving us everything that is. And so we would all come from our classrooms to give praise to God, the creator, for the things we discovered in the natural order. Now, that's the way it used to work. It doesn't work that way anymore. Have you noticed? But it does work that way when you have an enlightened observer who looks into the heavens we, either with a telescope or without one and sees the grandeur of God's handiwork and hears the speech of the natural order itself crying out that it is made by the hands of God. Now there's a person who knows God and who is able to learn from him even in the created order. Now, that's what David does here in these first six verses. And you find, of course, by the time you get to verse 4, at the end of verse 4 through 5 and 6, he picks up one of the bodies, the heavenly bodies. The most obvious one of all, he speaks of it uh, as an example. He says, take the sun like a bridegroom going to reach its, uh, his bride or like a great runner chasing across the skies. Look at that sun. 
it always arises over there. And with great speed and piercing heat, it makes its way through the skies and settles over there. And the next day it comes over here and races again over here. He's, he's his slack-jawed at the wonder of God's creation. And he says about the sun fundamentally, look how powerful the sun is. And yet it's completely obedient to the order of God. Oh, he's taking great delight with all of his poetic and artistic skill, all of his literary skill. He's giving us his musings. You know, my my father used to do this, not nearly at the same level poetically that David did, I'll assure you of that, especially after a couple of drinks. But my dad would sit out on the terrace late at night and... uh, he would sometimes I would go out around 10 o'clock at night before I would go to bed and I'd find my dad out there in the lawn chair out on the terrace with no roof over him just looking into the heavens and I don't know how many times he said to me can you believe what God has done and ladies and gentlemen sometimes in the reformed and evangelical faith we've been rightly criticized for diminishing the importance of God's creation. And we've been criticized for not caring for it as we should. And we should be the leaders because we believe that there is a God who made it all and His handiwork, His artwork, is important to preserve. If we preserve Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, we certainly ought to preserve what God has made uh, right before our eyes. Now notice that for the psalmist, he must go on. Once he's been enraptured by the the revelation of God in creation, he just can't stop himself. He is going to go beyond the created order. He's going to go beyond natural revelation. Now he's going to speak of the knowledge of God through special revelation. You know, there's a little ditty that, sadly to me, my grandmother used to have in her garden. And if you have in your garden, you can either just forget what I say and don't worry about it, or you can take it out, which is what I would do. But... Here's the little ditty that I noticed several people have in their gardens. It says, uh, Kiss of the sun for pardon, song of the birds for mirth. You're closer to God's heart in the garden than any place on earth. Wrong. (laughs) David the gardener and the artist and the poet and the musician said, one thing I seek of the Lord, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in His holy place and gaze upon His beauty. David wanted to gaze upon the beauty of God, not just in His wisdom and power, the one who made everything that we see and experience in the natural realm, He wanted to know the God who saved sinners. And it was there that David found the depths of God's character and took great delight in it. And so he turns from the natural order in verse 7. And now he turns to the special revelation order. And here you can see that he's speaking about God's word. We don't have time to look at it in detail. But you'll notice that in verses 7 through 9, David simply takes delight in the power of God's Word. And you'll notice there are three verses there, and really six verses, if you will, divided into the three, our three verses in English. 
And he uses six different words for the scriptures. Look at it. He uses the word law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, or what we might call judgments of God. And look how he describes them. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and altogether righteous. Wow, what a book this must be. What a revelation this must be. The precepts and commandments of God, the promises of God, the warnings of God, all of it is perfect and pure and righteous altogether and leads to the fear of God and leads to joy in our hearts and radiance in our eyes. What a book is this? Give me that book. Well, indeed, that's exactly what he says. If you look at verses, uh, verse 10, here we see the value of God's word. And what does he say? It's more precious than gold. Even much purified, refined gold. 22 karat gold. It's precious, more precious than all the gold you can accumulate. And he also says it's sweeter than honey. And even the honey in the honeycomb. And that's pretty sweet. And he says the Bible, the word of God is more valuable to me and sweeter to me than that. That's David's experience. And let me remind you, David had at his time Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, probably Joshua. And that's it. And he says those first six books of the Bible that we would call the first six books of our Bible is more valuable to me than all the gold of Ophir. Now, folks, we need to ask ourselves a question. We need to ask ourselves, really, if we've seen the Word of God that way. If you'd like to know why our moral standards in the church, even the Reformed Church, do not differ very much from society's standards, it's because we've not had our lives shaped by the Word of God. And you want to know why it's not shaped by the Word of God? Because we've not fallen in love with the Word of God. You can't just grunt it out like Algebra 2 and hope you get through the textbook. Boy, glad I read that thing through. I've, I've, I've now done my duty. No, we live in it. It's the source of life for us. It's the voice of our loving Father to His children. And it shapes everything that we believe. All of our affections, our opinions, even our political opinions, our convictions, our ethics, our speech, the meditations of our hearts, everything. That's what the Bible is to do for us. I'd like to challenge those of us here from gathered churches to think about three things. If I could help us apply this to ourselves right now. And to ask ourselves whether the Bible really is worth more than gold to us. If it really is sweeter than key lime pie to us. Or pecan pie. Or whatever it is you'd like to eat. Is it really sweeter to us than that? Let me ask you as individuals. Are you reading through the Bible? You adults on a regular basis? Is there a plan to understand the books of the Bible? If you've only been a Christian for two or three years, 
well, if you're an adult and you've been a Christian for two or three years, you've probably been reading very fast to try to catch up with everybody else. But if you've only been a Christian for four or five years, of course, you're still in the early stages of your learning. But you know what? If you've been a Christian for 10 years, is there any reason why you shouldn't have read through the Bible and have generally understood what each of the books of the Bible is about? Would that not be expected of someone who's graduating from Bible school? That they would know the books of the Bible, what they're about, and how to apply them to their lives. If we don't do that, the Bible's not going to be sweeter than honey because there's no honey in our mouths. David meditated upon the Word of God day after day. How do you meditate on it? You don't just have a Bible stick in front of your face when you're working on your accounting procedures. No, you have the Bible ruminating through your mind. And as Spurgeon said, your blood is bibline. You've soaked it in. That's the reason that it's important for us to think about regaining the Sabbath when we set aside time to soak it up so that we're not just overwhelmed with MTV or CNN or anything else. We devote ourselves to being shaped by the Scriptures. Do you have a plan? Are you making progress? Do you feel like the Bible is beginning to master you? What about our families? If you have young families, are you reading a paragraph of the Bible every night? You know, I was amazed that when our kids were in the second grade, we would often have Sunday school teachers say, your child knows so much about the Bible. You'd think we sent them all for three years to Bible school. I'll tell you all we did. We read one paragraph of the Bible every night. Now, you do that for about five years, and you got yourself a lot of paragraphs. But let's just read a paragraph of the Bible in our families. You know why? Your family needs to be absorbed into the Word of God. Your family needs to have it as common parlance among the family members so it becomes a a, a subject for discussion about the text last night or the text tonight. Are you reading in your families? And parents, do you understand that for good or ill, you are the primary Bible teachers to your children? And if you're not a very good Bible teacher, you've already made a statement to your child that the Bible is not all that important to you, that there's some other book or magazine or source of learning that's more important to you, and you're quite expert at it. But when it comes to the Bible, we'll get the Sunday school teacher to help you with that one. You've made an enormous statement in your family. When the Protestant Reformation took place, And when revivals took place under Wesley and Whitfield, it was because the Bible was seen as the very word of God and the people were convicted by it. Right now, the knowledge of the Bible is so shallow, I'm not sure we could even be convicted by it. And it largely is a breakdown in family worship. Thirdly, what about our churches? And let me say to those of you who are Sunday school teachers, and I know we have a number of you here, and those of us who are preachers certainly fall under this rubric, But let me just ask, are we teaching the Bible as the Word of God? Are we devoting ourselves to expository teaching as the main diet for the church? And I have to say, as I travel from church to church around the country, and especially if I'm on vacation, I'll just drop in somewhere and just listen in. I find very few pastors anymore. Gentlemen, don't you find this to be true as well? Very few pastors who will take simply a text of the Scriptures and explain it and apply it to the congregation. And what does that do? That teaches the congregation that you have to have some theological mumbo-jumbo in order to be able to give a lesson. No, all you have to do is read the Bible and try to understand it and apply it to your life. 
We need to see a major return of expository teaching in Sunday school classes, small groups, and pulpits in our city and in our country. Now, so David says, here's the value of God's word. It's more valuable to me than gold and sweeter than honey. And then he says, let me tell you what it does. It warns me. And it promises me great reward. Great reward. You say, I I thought our rewards were based on the works of Jesus. Of course they are. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Having been saved and justified, God takes great delight to pour out rewards upon his children. His children. We're all in. We're all part of the family. But he loves to pour out rewards. And you know where those come? From abiding by his word. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's how we express our love. We can't love him if we don't know the commandments. Charles Colson was teaching the Texas legislature on one occasion years ago about prison reform. And he spoke to them about the fact that really there's no sense in putting property violators in the penitentiary. If someone's stolen something, all you're doing by putting him in the prison is making him a future criminal. Let's let the man work and pay back double for what he stole. And they were going, that is an amazing idea. And then he said, no one should be put in prison unless they are a harm, a future, a potential harm to their neighbor. Otherwise, they ought to just simply be giving back what they took. And people came up to him afterwards and said, where did you get those ingenious ideas? From the Bible, he said. From the Old Testament. It's amazing how people can think in their realms once they learn the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, lastly, we've seen that we must, it is our duty to learn of God's power and deity in His creation. And secondly, in verses 7 through 11, we learn that it is our duty to learn of God's saving grace in His Word. But thirdly, it is our duty to pray that we might conform to what we learn. As the old Presbyterian constitution used to say, truth is in order to goodness. And so we don't just learn the Bible so that we can be better informed sinners. We learn the Bible to be transformed. Look at verse 12. David says, who can discern his errors? Who would even know how to confess sin if there were no word of God? It's the word of God that searches our hearts and enables us to confess our sins. So that we can experience the forgiveness of our sins. And it is in that same law that God gives his precept that those who confess their sins will be forgiven. How would we know this otherwise? How would we possibly discern our hidden faults? So we pray for forgiveness by the word of God. Secondly, notice in verse 13 that he prays for protection. Lord, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, high-handed sins. Sins that are not just done in ignorance, but sins that are done in abject rebellion against your majesty. And David, of course, was quite capable of doing that, wasn't he? And so are we. And so the law shows us our own weakness. And our need to cry out to God to protect us from these presumptuous, high-handed sins. And then thirdly and lastly, in our prayers, in verse 14, we see that we must pray for enablement. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
Here David, as a result of the law of God, the word of God, understands the depth of real holiness and therefore the depth of his own sin and inability by human nature and therefore the urgency of crying out to God to enable him to obey God not only with his actions but with his words and not only with his words but with the thoughts of his heart. And the reason is Satan doesn't know the thoughts of your hearts. He's not omniscient. But God knows the thoughts of your hearts. And therefore, if he knows, then our sinful thoughts offend him. And David just has to cry out for mercy. Any of us who know his romantic heart, we know how he's liable to big sins and small sins alike. And David just cries out, may the words of my mouth... And the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see how the law, the word of God, gently leads us to him again so that we are assured that he is our rock, he is our hope, he's the only one who can enable us. And he's the only one who can enable Memphis and to enable America and to enable the world to rise up and acknowledge him as the creator and sustainer and judge and savior of the world. This is the reason that at the heart of our belief system is a belief in the Bible alone as the authoritative word of God. May that conviction settle upon Christ's church everywhere. And may that conviction cause God's people in every church everywhere to seek his power and enablement that we may display the glory of God, not only with our deeds, but with our words and our thoughts. Glory be to his name now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself in special revelation to us. Just as we thank you for revealing yourself in natural revelation. We pray that we may be students of both the natural order and special revelation, that we may give honor and glory to you for your creation and for our salvation, now and forevermore. Amen.